when I watched the Crip Camp documentary on Netflix, it was such a moment for me and my personal development, honestly, just learning about Kitty Cohn and Judy Human and the Black Panthers, everyone who came together to, to bring about civil rights protection for people with disabilities. But then that sparked me going down an entire rabbit hole, right? Because I was I was actually really angry. It's like, why had I never learned about this before? And I saw other folks online lamenting similarly, like, why did we not learn about this before? Um, so yeah, I, I like bought every book I could find on disability history. This is Towards a Kinder Public, a podcast exploring issues in public space and ways to achieve a kinder public space that better meets our interconnected needs. I'm Kevin Castle, and along with Annie Chen, we are Kinder Public. Our guests are the co-founders of the brilliant toy company Historicons, Rajiv Fernandez, the artist behind Lil Icon and published children's author, who is also trained as an architect, and Dr. Rose Perry, an applied research scientist with a PhD in neuroscience and physiology, and the founder and executive director of Social Creatures, an applied research nonprofit. This is the second part of our conversation. You can find part one on our website at kinderpublic.com under the podcast tab, or simply go back one week on your podcast player. This week we speak in more depth about the neuroscience behind being able to identify with role models, hidden history and intersectional activism, about curb cuts and what they tell us about better design of public space, and how the field of historic preservation sometimes gives us the wrong impression about disability accommodations in the past. Thank you for joining us for this powerful conversation. I wanted to ask you about memories that you might have, as you say, on the Historicon's website of piecing together history and finding individuals that you identified with. And we've talked about this quite a bit. We've touched on it several times already, but I'm wondering if you have moments where you found someone or an event that really struck you and was meaningful to you and how piecing together those bits of history felt to you. I think it's such an important point to talk about how it impacts a person to find individuals that they can relate to. Yeah. I mean, the one that I mentioned before, and I'll mention again now and expand upon is is just when I watched the Crip Camp documentary on Netflix, just because it was such a moment for me and my personal development, honestly, just learning about Kitty Cohn and Judy Human and the Black Panthers, everyone who came together to to bring about civil rights protection for people with disabilities. But then that sparked me going down an entire rabbit hole, right? Because I was I was actually really angry. It's like, why had I never learned about this before? Um, and I saw other folks online lamenting similarly, like, why did we not learn about this before? Um, so yeah, I, I like bought every book I could find on disability history, learned about the Capitol crawl, which helped lead to the passing of the Americans with Disabilities Act. I learned about the rolling quads, so like Ed Roberts and Hale Zuka's. Um, it's basically, they... They did a lot in general for disability rights, but they helped create herb cuts. 
So the mini ramps that are mm-hmm. on sidewalks that I think a lot of people take for granted, they didn't used to exist. Um, the rolling quads would go out at night and kind of sledgehammer their own curbs and lay asphalt and they pressured uh, local government to, to actually make them a thing throughout the country. So learning about disability and hist- history in general, I've learned about so many people that have just helped me feel pride in my identity and that I've identified with. And then not just them, but the allies along the way too, right? So the Black Panthers with the 504 sit-in, they, they're responsible for like the free lunch program that we have in the States today, right? But they also brought free lunch to activists for 30 days while they they occupied a federal building. And yeah, just the intersectionality, the working together to uplift everyone. Hopefully people can see themselves identified, or, but also see allies as well and identify with the allyship aspect of a lot of stories in history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely the intersectionality among the stories that we're telling, but I think just in general, uh, you know, had an effect on me. So, you know, as a practicing architect, we have to comply with ADA standards and the ADA is a direct result of the 504 sit-in. I didn't know that before. Like, did you? I didn't know about the 504 sit-in until much later, much, much later. Yeah. So like, I mean, I used to complain about like the stringent guidelines, you know, we had to abide by, but I think education definitely builds empathy. And now I'm like super adamant about making public spaces accessible even like private space, like any space needs to be accessible. And right now I'm reading David Gisson's book, The Architecture of Disability. I am and too. Won't that yeah, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, because, you, you know, like we, we went to GSAP at our school that uh, we went to. Mm-hmm. They really had a heavy emphasis on architectural history, but they never taught us about this. And this is, you know, like he brings up the precedence of accessibility, like dating back to the acrop- to the Acropolis. Mm-hmm. So, you know. That's a great story. Will you say more about that? That's a really interesting point. Yeah. So as they've been excavating um, the Acropolis, they noticed that there were like ramps spiraling up around to get to the top of it. So that suggests that they didn't rely on like stair climbing to get to the top. So, you know, we, we look at like preservationists and there is a level of ableism to them when they're saying like, oh, if you remove the stairs and put in a ramp, like that's going to take away some of the historical context. Well, you know, accessibility has been there from really er from very early on. So, you know, making spaces accessible is not a new concept. So anyway, I I think finding this connection to my professional identity to the disabled community is just proof that there's more that connects us than what appears on the surface. Absolutely. I'm really glad you brought up that book. It's really fascinating. And I think reading Gisson's book is what made me really focus on the collaborative aspects of your puzzles, because he talks about how we as a a society tend to look at disability as individuals. So we're like isolating people saying, well, we'll make some sort of accommodation for you to get to this one spot. But these accommodations are helping us all. And that's also part of how Kinder Public formed is we realized like how many of our different user groups actually rely on the same accommodations and are benefited by them. And in talking about allies, you know, like we have the same interests. These things are helping all of us. So why would we want to look at them as something to to help one individual when in fact it just benefits everyone? Like you you talking about making your home accessible. And 
you know, as we age, <laughs> like that will, that will actually make our home accessible to ourselves. And it's really interesting. And like the curb cuts, I remember living in my community at that time, <laughs> people really having to justify those being uh, revised. And I remember specifically people advocating and saying, well, it uses less concrete, so it's good. Everybody uses curb cuts. Everyone does. They're such a helpful thing. They named the curb cut effect after that. Have you heard of the curb cut effect? I have not. <laughs> That's great. You just, well, you just you just described it, right? It's it's a, a concept that when you build for accessibility, that it, it benefits everyone, not just individuals with uh, physical disabilities. So right. curb cut effect. Yeah. And it's just because that's such a good example. Like most people who are using curb cuts probably don't even realize that they were built, put there originally because of ADA and because of people with disabilities, because everyone uses it now. It's so important to note that your body does different things on different days, no matter who you are. We don't allow for that. We don't allow for people to have surgeries. We don't allow for people to have disabilities. We don't allow for people to age. We don't allow for people to be young. We really need to recognize that there is no one body that's moving through these spaces. And it's very frustrating to me. Yeah, we're all pretty much... Well, if you're not disabled, you're temporarily able-bodied, I would argue. That's right. Because injury, aging, it's just all a natural part of the human condition. So yeah, it doesn't get us too far to, to look at things through the individual framework of disability, to your earlier point. Historic Hans materials are developed with educators and child development specialists. Your website mentions developmental areas like critical thinking skills and positive identity development as areas that your puzzles and educational materials will impact. Rose, from your perspective as a neuroscientist specializing in child development, can you explain a little more about these concepts and particularly positive identity development? Sure. So, yeah, positive identity development really refers to the process through which we develop a strong sense of, of who we are. It's about forming a healthy and confident understanding of ourselves, including our values, our belief systems, and personal qualities. Uh, so you can really think about it as building a solid foundation of our identity, and it ultimately influences how we perceive ourselves and interact with the world around us. And identity development is a lifelong process. So I think it's important to mention that, um, you know, I, I think I've even spoken about how Crip Camp, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't see that till I was in my early 30s. And that's that continued to influence my positive identity development. But it really does start in childhood. The foundations of positive identity development start in childhood are, are influenced by many different factors, including family dynamics, cultural context, social interactions, and um, research does show that it's fostered by engaging with diverse perspectives and experiences that help us broaden our understanding of ourselves and others. And it's essential to have supportive relationships and access to relatable role models, whether that be through history or through personal connections. Uh, and that can really inspire us and provide guidance as we we figure out who we are. Um, so that's that's really what it means. And we really hope that we can be just a force, a good force in that direction for children, especially those who often might not see themselves represented in their everyday lives and also who are facing, you know, stereotyping or microaggressions or impacts of being part of a 
marginalized group. Um, I know that I experienced that growing up. So just trying to counteract that as much as we can as well by having discussions around this in addition to just having representation. So just to touch on that a little more, why is it important for the development of critical thinking skills and positive identity development that children have access to role models they can identify with? What are some of the specific outcomes that you are looking for from the perspective of your background as a neuroscientist? Yeah, I mean, in terms of outcomes, it's it's really about looking for things like self-esteem, confidence, and just overall well-being, especially when it comes to positive identity development. Without it, it becomes so much harder to navigate challenges, to build meaningful relationships, um, and even to pursue goals. So yeah, I know for myself that identifying role models and historical figures who share similar backgrounds to me and characteristics has helped me. And research does show that having positive role models can develop those things, but also pro-social behaviors, empathy, moral reasoning. And this goes both sides, right? So it's one thing to talk about your own positive identity development, but I think tapping into things like critical thinking as well, it's important to learn about people who have different backgrounds from you and to learn how to empathize and, and take perspective, perspective shift into their shoes and know how to act and how not to act. I know that people with physical disabilities are often like the first living exhibit for kids if they haven't been exposed to them before. So I've, I've been there many a time where kids say things that are really embarrassing to their parents. So yeah, I think that just having discussions early and often in an age-appropriate way about things like identity and diversity, whether they're for your own self development or just to learn about the other folks in your environment is so important. And, and it, you need critical thinking skills to be able to do that. You need empathy. You need to be able to be pro-social. Yeah. So th that's really a lot of what we try to integrate into how we're designing our, our puzzles and, and why we've built it as a puzzle opposed to a book, even I would argue, like we really want kids and adults to come back to the puzzles again and again and maybe notice something new about it for the first time. Notice an Easter egg that Rajiv has put in there that they didn't mm -hmm. the first time and have these conversations early and often. I know this is a really big thing that anti-racist, anti-bias educators also advocate for is having the talks as early and often as possible. And yeah, that's just all related to hopefully creating a safe space for your child to identify with who they are safely and happily, uh, but also to learn about others from different backgrounds and know how to to be kind and compassionate and allies to others who aren't like them. Yeah. And can I add one thing from my non-expertise that I've noticed? Kids have access to information that we could have never dreamed of uh, growing up. And I think, especially for people that are our age and maybe like Gen X, a little bit older, who have young kids, you know, we're not equipped to to answer these kids' questions. So I, I think there's also like a sense of an embarrassment uh, on our end. Um, so I, I think mm -hmm. by giving the tools to adults as well, it's gonna help them talk to, to children and um, explain to them, you know, the tough questions that they might have. That's a great point. Yeah, that's a great point, Rajiv. And I know that that's a concern of a lot of parents too, is like, when is the right time to start having some of these discussions? and. For so many reasons, I would argue to do it early, but I, I will just put my personal lived experience hat on and say that if you aren't talking about 
like if your kid has a physical disability and looks different and you're not talking about that with them, they're still going to school or they're going out in the world and they're facing other people treating them differently and doing things that aren't always nice. And when you don't have a space at home, when you can, you can talk about that or you don't know how to process it, you internalize it as shame. Like you, you feel shame in your identity. So I think you want your kids to hear it from you first and have a space to discuss these things because they're going to face it in the world regardless. So yeah, that's just my pitch for any parents listening out there that maybe feel a little bit anxious about starting to have these discussions. It's I just think it's so important. Yeah, a, a friend of mine recently had a baby. So I think he turned like six months old recently. And I was like, did you know that he can see race now? So, uh, <laughs> you know, I learned that from Rose's research that as young as six months, they're starting to take notice about identity traits. Mm-hmm. True, babies notice. I want to ask you more questions about what grown-ups who have not experienced modeling of these discussions at all can do. You know, I think like engaging with materials like the games and the educational materials that you've developed is one thing. Really helping to be able to create that safe space is like a, it's a really important thing. And I'll, I'm saying that because I recognize that I need to have those things modeled for me, but also because I am the parent of a disabled child who is visibly disabled and I need to be able to create that safe space. And that was never a part of my upbringing at all. So I, I love that you brought in the idea that we need to do that for grownups as well. And yeah, any thoughts, any further thoughts you have about that, I think would be really helpful. Yeah, I think it's that gray space that's hard, right? So we do have discussion guides that come with all of our puzzles to to try to help with that. Um, and we've also held webinars before where we talk about kind of that sort of stuff in the modeling. Great. But I also think that it's important to just to, to have diverse community as well. So like to seek out people in your community that are adults with disability that can share with you their perspectives from when they were a kid, uh, also parents of other kids with disability. I think just having that space for yourself as the caregiver mm-hmm. to learn from lived experiences is just as important as anything that we could build into our product. But yeah, we do try to at least provide those discussion guides and webinars and, and we have plans to create more content around exactly that kind of like the modeling of discussions, um, filling in those gray areas when it's a, a, a new experience for the parent, which is understandable. Yeah. And also kind of going back to the beginning of our discussion, like a lot of the media that we have had access to, a lot of the history that we have had access to, again, is very limited. And so we're entering discussions that as grown-ups that maybe we haven't had before because that was eliminated from our history and wasn't that it didn't exist and it wasn't that people didn't know about it because as you pointed out these figures were activists and working at that time and they they just were simply eliminated from the curriculum and not discussed yeah and i'll add one more piece on this that i think is important to highlight in the context of this part of the discussion is speaking from my experience as a kid, the thing that I, I wish I had more of was more community with other kids with disabilities and more exposure to the social model of disability rather than just the medical model of disability. So, and I, I, I see that we're shifting as a society towards more balance there. Uh, but when you go to the doctors as a parent or as a kid with a disability, you really get forced the medical model of disability. Like that's right. How is, 
how is this a bad thing or what are your limitations? Um, whereas the social model of disability talks about how society creates the barriers, right? And just making sure that you can create balance in your household, understanding that, yes, yeah, sometimes the medical model of disability is relevant. Like I have chronic pain. I love that I can take medicine to help with my chronic pain. That's looking at things through a medical model. But I don't love that there are tables and chairs that don't fit me well and no one ever considers how spaces and places are designed for small people. And that contributes way more to my chronic pain to begin with, right? So just delineating the two. And I think had I learned about the social model more, I would have had more confidence in my interaction with my peers. I would have been able to stand up for myself more, not even stand up. I wouldn't have maybe even needed to as much because I wouldn't have seen myself as the problem as much as things outside of me that I could begin to push for change for, if that makes sense. So I just think it's really important to have that balanced view of disability as a parent. And I'm glad to see that we're, we're getting more of that, but there's still a, way to, a ways to go for sure. Mm -hmm. You very nicely already segued into this next question, but how can a more accurate and diverse picture of history positively impact the character of our public space? Yeah, I think, you know, as we, as we mentioned earlier with the Acropolis example, like these examples have existed for a long time. So we're really not creating something new. Uh, we're just creating something that's more inclusive. And, you know, the more that we publicize it and show it and show what the built environment can be like when all different types of people are enjoying it and utilizing it, I think that will kind of create a new standard or how to build in the modern age. Yeah, and I'll add to that that I think just having more diverse representation and visibility of different people of different backgrounds who look different, etc. That if we can as a society learn just in our everyday lives, like when you think of a person, you think of a diverse group of people and not just like the status quo of what most people would visualize <laughs> if you were to picture like the average American, for example that we then start to design more inclusively also. So I think there's a there's also a link between how can we make everyday places and spaces and experiences increasing visibility of diverse representation to begin with. And it is a bit of a catch-22 because if the spaces aren't designed for everyone, not everyone can socially integrate. But mm -hmm. um, I think media, getting better with things like media and toys can help quite a bit because it's bringing diversity diverse visibility into the home in a bigger way than happened when we were kids. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to that idea of sticky history, which is the wonderful magnetic quality of your images that can be displayed and kept present. And I'm really interested to see how that grows. And I'm really interested to see your toys in public spaces. I really encourage listeners to look at these items. Look for yourself. They are perfect for birthdays, for school classrooms, for home schools, for library collections, museum activity areas. They should be everywhere. They're beautiful to present as well as keep active as toys. How can listeners find you online and stay in touch with you and support your amazing work? Thank you for those kind words. We're, we're on most social media platforms, so Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. We are a platform to amplify marginalized voices. We're not here to make a buck. We're here to make the world more inclusive. So, you know, we encourage you to follow along. And if there are events that you want to be told like please let us know we are looking to add more stories and 
you know, kind of create a larger database so everyone feels like they have a piece of Historicons. You can find us at Historicons on the social media channels that Rajiv just listed. And we're at historicons.com, www.historicons.com. Also, feel free to reach out. We have a contact form there or DM us. We love hearing from from folks. You find us all different ways. This work is really, really wonderful. And so I want to just say again, um, Rajiv, Rose, and also to Diana. I'm sorry you didn't get to meet this time, but I'm so impressed with your work. What you're doing is so important. And thank you so much for everything. I hope you really thrive in this business and we're able to find you in many, many public spaces. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Kevin. Great to see you again. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Good to see you. Subscribe to Towards a Kinder Public on your favorite podcast player, and please leave us a rating and a review. It helps increase the visibility of our message, and we really appreciate your support. To share information about issues in public space and spaces and businesses that are doing things right, email podcast at kinderpublic.com. Links to more information about the guests and topics mentioned, as well as a full transcript of the conversation, are available on the podcast section of our website, kinderpublic.com. Visit our website to learn more about our work. I'm Kevin Castle. Our guests this week have been Dr. Rose Perry and Rajiv Fernandez, co-founders of Historicons. Have a very good week. Oh,